Game Cool Books, Episode 7, In Your Own Home. Welcome back. Wesley Schantz here, looking with you today at Chapter 5 of Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass, The Cocktail Party. Here's the opening passage. In the days that followed, Lyra went everywhere with Mrs. Coulter, almost as if she were a demon herself. Mrs. Coulter knew a great many people, and they met in all kinds of different places. In the morning there might be a meeting of geographers at the Royal Arctic Institute, and Lyra would sit by and listen. And then Mrs. Coulter might meet a politician or a cleric for lunch in a smart restaurant, and they would be very taken with Lyra and order special dishes for her, and she would learn how to eat asparagus or what sweetbreads tasted like. And then in the afternoon there might be more shopping, for Mrs. Coulter was preparing her expedition, and there were furs and oilskins and waterproof boots to buy, as well as sleeping bags and knives and drawing instruments that delighted Lyra's heart. After that, they might go to tea and meet some ladies, as well-dressed as Mrs. Coulter, if not so beautiful or accomplished. Women so unlike female scholars or Egyptian boat mothers or college servants as almost to be a new sex altogether one with dangerous powers and qualities, such as elegance, charm, and grace. Lyra would be dressed up prettily for these occasions, and the ladies would pamper her and include her in their graceful, delicate talk, which was all about people, this artist or that politician or those lovers. And when the evening came, Mrs. Coulter might take Lyra to the theater, and again there would be lots of glamorous people to talk to and be admired by, for it seemed that Mrs. Coulter knew everyone important in London. The conditional quality, saying all this might or would happen, is like the way we saw the Tony Macarios interlude introduced. It would happen like this. Here it gives a sense of the passing days differing as to their specifics, but of there being really nothing at stake in the difference between them. They're all different in the same way. Taken together like this, they convey the impression of time passing lightly and pleasantly. This goes for the meetings as well. None of these people are distinct enough to need named. We are hovering here on the boundary of the story, at the edge of the narrator's bright beam of attention that gives life to events and characters. The comparison, lightly tossed off, between the way Lyra accompanies Mrs. Coulter and the way her demon does, operates fully within the world of the story, comparing two things which exist only there. But it's a thought we'll want to file away for later. In fact, taken together with something Lyra overheard in the retiring room about the king of the Panzer Bjorna, the idea of a human child being someone's demon will prove to be quite important to the plot. Thematically, the perspectives towards dust, represented by Lyra and Pan, as opposed to Mrs. Coulter and her demon, the nameless golden monkey, began in this chapter to come into stark relief, so that this, as if she were a demon herself, in hindsight will appear much more shocking. Not least because, by the end of the cocktail party, Lyra will separate herself decisively from Mrs. Coulter shortly after we hear how shocked she is to see her momentarily without her demon. Such a thing is supposed to be impossible, even more unthinkable than running away from
from the person who is supposed to love you. In the opening passage, we get reminders of the journey to the north. These preparations are spoken of in terms of further shopping expeditions. Particularly, as we highlighted over the past couple weeks with supplemental readings from Blake and looking at Philip Pullman's illustrations, we shouldn't be too surprised by the drawing instruments that delighted Lyra's heart. The detail harkens back to the pictures around the face of the alethiometer, which delighted her. Though she hid the instrument from Mrs. Coulter, as the master bid her too, Lyra's admiration of her is riding high still, we see as she compares her favorably to the other ladies they meet. Still, the elegance, grace, charm of all of them are a revelation to Lyra of the power of the female sex. The masculine world of Jordan kept those occult powers at bay, but with Lyra herself growing into them, a shift like this one into the custody and company of ladies would have been inevitable. The closing image of the theater with its glamorous people and their mutual admiration is a fitting one for the narrator's artful display of fleeting time. The following passages, in some way the whole rest of the chapter, go on to deal in different ways with Lyra's education. In the intervals between all these other activities, Mrs. Coulter would teach her the rudiments of geography and mathematics. Lyra's knowledge had great gaps in it, like a map of the world largely eaten by mice, for at Jordan they had taught her in a piecemeal and disconnected way. A junior scholar would be detailed to catch her and instruct her in such and such, and the lessons would continue for a sullen week or so until she forgot to turn up, to the scholar's relief. Or else a scholar would forget what he was supposed to teach her, and drill her at great length about the subject of his current research, whatever that happened to be. It was no wonder her knowledge was patchy. She knew about atoms and elementary particles and enbaromagnetic charges and the four fundamental forces and other bits and pieces of experimental theology, but nothing about the solar system. In fact, when Mrs. Coulter realized this and explained how the Earth and the other five planets revolved around the sun, Lyra laughed loudly at the joke. It's interesting here to see Mrs. Coulter, for all her refinement, personally instructing Lyra in these rudiments, patiently filling in the lost territory of that map largely eaten by mice. This approach is the complete opposite of Lyra's experience at Jordan, evading systematic lessons and learning instead about whatever captivated the scholar's attention. We're given to understand that Jordan's specialty is in experimental theology, and getting a better picture here of what that is. We can call it by its name in our world, physics. We saw Lyra's ignorance likened to a map of the world, and with the example of the movement of the planets, we shift the scale to a model of the solar system. Not knowing the six planets revolve around the sun, she laughs, thinking that Mrs. Coulter's account of their movement is a joke. While we might laugh, too, about the number she gives of the planets, within this meta-joke, all sorts of questions might also arise about the heliocentric model, how it's adopted by the church in this parallel universe, which stops short of embracing inquiry into newly discovered planets. We might recall the persecution of such figures as Giordano Bruno and Galileo Galilei in our own world, 
and the joke may yet be on us, as we've much more recently seen the number of planets called into question on scientific, not religious, grounds defining what a planet is in the case of Pluto. So that the picture of ignorance which emerges here is complex. There's Lyra's ignorance, which is innocent, and Mrs. Coulter's and the Magisterium's seemingly complicit in their own ignorance, and the readers, as we reflect that we too might not know as much as we think. Along these lines, I draw your attention to a curious, perhaps accidental echo in one of Plato's dialogues, where Socrates speaks of turning his educational efforts from the celestial to more down-to-earth topics. I should like to know, Socrates, whether the place is not somewhere here at which Boreas is said to have carried off Orithia from the banks of the Ilissus. Such is the tradition. And is this the exact spot? The little stream is delightfully clear and bright. I can fancy that there might be maidens playing near. I believe the spot is not exactly here but about a quarter of a mile lower down, where you cross to the temple of Artemis, and there is, I think, some sort of an altar of Boreas at the place. I have never noticed it, but I beseech you to tell me, Socrates, do you believe this tale? The wise are doubtful, and I should not be singular if, like them, I too doubted. I might have a rational explanation that Orithia was playing with Pharmacia when a northern gust carried her over the neighboring rocks, and this being the manner of her death, she was said to have been carried away by Boreas. There is a discrepancy, however, about the locality. According to another version of the story, she was taken from Aeropagus, and not from this place. Now, I quite acknowledge that these allegories are very nice, but he is not to be envied who has to invent them. Much labor and ingenuity will be required of him, and when he has once begun, he must go on and rehabilitate hippocentaurs and chimeras dire, gorgons and winged steeds flow in apace, and numberless other inconceivable and portentous natures. And if he is skeptical about them, and would fain reduce them one after another to the rules of probability, this sort of crude philosophy will take up a great deal of time. Now I have no leisure for such inquiries. Shall I tell you why? I must first know myself as the Delphian inscription says, to be curious about that which is not my concern, while I am still in ignorance of my own self, would be ridiculous. And therefore I bid farewell to all this. The common opinion is enough for me, for as I was saying, I want to know not about this, but about myself. Am I a monster more complicated and swollen with passion than the serpent Typhon, or a creature of a gentler and simpler sort? to whom nature has given a diviner and lowlier destiny. But let me ask you, friend, have we not reached the plane tree to which you are conducting us? In the next scene, we begin to see how these questions of morals and physics are entangled in Pullman's experimental theology. However, she was keen to show that she did know some things, and when Mrs. Coulter was telling her about electrons, she said expertly, Yes, they're negatively charged particles, sort of like dust, except that dust isn't charged. As soon as, she, as soon as she said that, Mrs. Coulter's demon snapped his head up to look at her, 
and all the golden fur on his little body stood up bristling as if it were charged itself. Mrs. Coulter laid a hand on his back. Dust, she said. Yeah, you know, from space, that dust. What do you know about dust, Lyra? Oh, that it comes out of space and lights people up, and if you have a special sort of camera to see it by. Except not children. It doesn't affect children. Where did you learn that from? By now, Lyra was aware that there was a powerful tension in the room, because Pantalaimon had crept ermine-like onto her lap and was trembling violently. Just someone in Jordan, Lyra said vaguely. I forget who. I think it was one of the scholars. Was it in one of your lessons? Yes, it might have been. Or else it might have been just in passing. Yes, I think that was it. This scholar, I think he was from New Denmark. He was talking to the chaplain about dust, and I was just passing, and it sounded interesting, so I couldn't help stopping to listen. That's what it was. I see, said Mrs. Coulter. Is it right, what he told me? Did I get it wrong? Well, I don't know. I'm sure you know much more than I do. Let's get back to those electrons. By making the leap from electrons to dust, Lyra's keen to show off. Knowledge is not dispassionate for her, any more than it is for Phaedrus. She wants Mrs. Coulter to admire her. But she becomes aware of the tension as she goes on with her response to Mrs. Coulter's question. In explaining her understanding, her understanding grows. Not only an external content, seeing how uneasy dust or her knowledge about dust, makes Mrs. Coulter. But in inwardness, in the reduplication of awareness of her awareness, she evades the danger for now by fabrication, particularly once Pan tells her how Mrs. Coulter grabbed the golden monkey. Lyra sees, along with the danger of dust, how little she knows Mrs. Coulter. We might note a couple other things in passing, this whole thing is catalyzed by a conversation about electrons. And the imagery used of the monkey's fur is that it seems ambarically charged. If we haven't put it together yet, ambaric is the word in Lyra's world for our, our word electric. Will and Lyra discuss this much later in the series, which will be interesting when we come to it. What's curious here is that the particles are still called electrons, rather than anberons or something. We also see Mrs. Coulter come up against the rule for manners laid down by Mrs. Parslow. Don't ever say dunno when someone asks you a question. She says she doesn't know when Lyra asks if she has it right. And this admission of her own ignorance is mostly, it seems, an evasion, a way to steer the conversation back to safer ground. Besides being disingenuous, it's also self-deprecating. Whereas Lyra's instinct, when she doesn't know something, has so far been to innocently make up a story. Here, she's lied to conceal the account of her experience in the retiring room. And she begins to be self-conscious, defensive. And then we'll get a stronger hint of this all. This important change during the party. After the scene with the electron lesson, the narration fades back out again briefly. And finally, there were other kinds of lessons so gently and subtly given that they didn't feel like lessons at all. How to wash one's own hair, how to judge which colors suited one, how to say no in such a charming way that no offense was given, 
how to put on lipstick, powder, scent. To be sure, Mrs. Coulter didn't teach Lyra the latter arts directly, but she knew Lyra was watching when she made herself up, and she took care to let Lyra see where she kept the cosmetics and to allow her time on her own to explore and try them out for herself. Observing these subtle lessons, we too are made to admire Mrs. Coulter's craft. By not teaching her directly, instead letting Lyra see what she does with the makeup and giving her time to try it on for herself, we have a picture of a kind of progressive education theorized by Rousseau and Dewey, and practiced by Montessori, before being brought to more mainstream teacher-training psychology courses by the work of Piaget and Vygotsky. In the example of the cosmetics, which Pullman doubles down on, on the afternoon of the party, we get a fairly unmistakable allusion to what has been called the problem of Susan at the end of The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. Brenton Dickieson has a good post about this on his blog, A Pilgrim in Narnia. He says, As I have been struggling lately with the problem of Susan, as Neil Gaiman put it, it brought me to an interview Pullman did for Slate a couple of years ago. Lyra is set up in the Golden Compass to be an anti-Lucy. As brilliant as Lyra is, it's Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that is the anti-Lucy. Lyra is another girl like Lucy, driven by curiosity, critical intelligence, and core integrity. Lyra is a trickster character, while Lucy is someone with spiritual sensitivity. Those traits are not opposites. I would love to meet the spiritually sensitive trickster in fiction. And both characters grow in wisdom as the two series continue. In the third and final volume of his Dark Materials, Lyra is most definitely cast as an anti-Susan. I often thought that move failed because it pressed the characters into a strange identification with sexual exploration in the hero's quest, as Stephen King does in It. But as I read this Slate interview, I wonder more if there's another reason that Pullman's anti-Susan fails, in a way that Neil Gaiman's anti-post-re-Susan doesn't. Given his response below, his bland assertion of the non-literary quality of Tolkien, I've begun to wonder if Pullman is a good reader of Lewis at all. Perhaps instead of writing anti-Narnian books, Philip Pullman will turn his considerable genius to simply telling great stories, a task for which he is eminently capable. But I'll let you be the judge. And then he goes on to quote from the Slate article, A Conversation with Philip Pullman by Katie Waldman, which is also available online in full. Uh, and there's a series of comments below this as well, which are pretty interesting. I've read them and even responded to them, and I would really like to get to talk to some of these um, commenters on the show. So maybe I'll invite them on. Anyway, with that, with the cosmetic scene, the chapter sort of begins anew. Time passed, and autumn began to change into winter. From time to time, Lyra thought of Jordan College, but it seemed small and quiet compared to the busy life she led now. Every so often she thought of Roger, too, and felt uneasy, but there was an opera to go to, or a new dress to wear, or the Royal Arctic Institute to visit. And then she forgot him again. So we hear her thinking of Jordan, feeling uneasy, thinking of Roger. 
But the emphasis here is on the distance that Lyra feels removed from them. She has so much to occupy her, and so different from the way she passed her time playing in Oxford. We finally get the mention of the seasons here, too. In the next paragraph, we get the time frame. Lyra had been there for six weeks or so when Mrs. Coulter decided to hold a cocktail party. The lessons are numbered. It's coming time for the exam. They start to talk about who to invite. We must have the Archbishop. I couldn't afford to leave him out, though he's the most hateful old snob. Lord Boreal is in town. He'll be fun. And the Princess Poznikova. Do you think it would be right to invite Eric Anderson? I wonder if it's about time to take him up. Just what Mrs. Coulter means by fun will not become explicit until the final chapter of the book in her confrontation with Azrael. But the name alone should give us a hint. The name of the North Wind, and part of the name of the Northern Lights. So he's a contrast not only with the tiresome Archbishop, but Lord Boreal is implicitly also brought into contrast with Lord Azrael too. Then the motif of Lyra's hope of going north gets connected to her missing her old life. We learn that the distance that she feels removed from Jordan and her occupations there is only part of the story. When Lyra went to bed, Pantalaimon whispered from the pillow, She's never going to the north. She's going to keep us here forever. When are we going to run away? She is, Lyra whispered back. You just don't like her. Well, that's hard luck. I like her. And why would she be teaching us navigation and all that if she wasn't going to take us north? To stop you getting impatient, that's why. You don't really want to stand around at the cocktail party being all sweet and pretty. She's just making a pet out of you. Lyra turned her back and closed her eyes. But what Pantalaimon said was true. She had been feeling confined and cramped by this polite life, however luxurious it was. She would have given anything for a day with Roger and her Oxford ragamuffin friends, with a battle in the clay beds and a race along the canal. The one thing that kept her polite and attentive to Mrs. Coulter was that tantalizing hope of going north. Perhaps they would meet Lord Asriel. Perhaps he and Mrs. Coulter would fall in love, and they would get married and adopt Lyra and go and rescue Roger from the gobblers. In some ways, this seems like a reversal of Pantalaimon's disagreement with Lyra at the start of the book. Here, he's urging her to act out, whereas there, he was warning her against breaking the rules. There, he was trying to get her out of the forbidden masculine retiring room. Here, he is trying to get her out of the stifling feminine polite society of the cocktail party. There's something else consistent that underlies the two, that Lyra is lying to herself. In chapter one, this was in lying to Pan about wanting to hide in the retiring room all along and not just sneak in for a quick look. And here, it's in her refusal to acknowledge that she's feeling untrue to herself and in refusing to admit the likelihood of what Pan points out about Mrs. Coulter. It's interesting that he dislikes her, while Lyra insists that she likes her. It's similar to the way that Pan saw from behind, while Lyra saw from the front in that tense discussion about dust. 
Then there comes the day of the party. The conflict between Pan and Mrs. Coulter and her demon is ratcheted way up with the effect of restoring unity of purpose to Pan and Lyra. Not the shoulder bag, dear, said Mrs. Coulter, as Lyra came out of her bedroom, glowing with a sense of her own prettiness. Lyra had taken to wearing a little white leather shoulder bag everywhere, so as to keep the alethiometer close at hand. Mrs. Coulter, loosening the cramped way some roses had been bunched into a vase, saw that Lyra wasn't moving and glanced pointedly at the door. Oh, please, Mrs. Coulter, I do love this bag. Not indoors, Lyra. It looks absurd to be carrying a shoulder bag in your own home. Take it off at once and come and help check these glasses. It wasn't so much her snappish tone as the words, in your own home, that made Lyra resist stubbornly. Pantalaimon flew to the floor and instantly became a polecat, arching his back against her little white ankle socks. Encouraged by this, Lyra said, but it won't be in the way, and it's the only thing I really like wearing. I think it really suits... But she didn't finish the sentence because Mrs. Coulter's demon sprang off the sofa in a blur of golden fur and pinned Pantalaimon to the carpet before he could move. Lyra cried out in alarm, and then in fear and pain, as Pantalaimon twisted this way and that, shrieking and snarling, unable to loosen the golden monkey's grip. Only a few seconds, and the monkey had overmastered him. With one fierce black paw around his throat and his black paws gripping the polecat's Lower limbs, he took one of Pantalaimon's ears and his other paw and pulled as if he intended to tear it off. Not angrily either, but with a cold, curious force that was horrifying to see and even worse to feel. Lyra sobbed in terror. Don't, please, stop hurting us. Mrs. Coulter looked up from her flowers. Do as I tell you then, she said. I promise. The golden monkey stepped away from Pantalaimon as if he were suddenly bored. Pantalaimon fled to Lyra at once, and she scooped him up to her face to kiss and gentle. Clearly this is more than a conflict over the bag, just as the tension before was about more than electrons. Still, it's worth bearing in mind what the bag itself represents. Lyra's vanity, partly, but more so her implicit mistrust of Mrs. Coulter. She wants to keep the alethiometer with her at all times. But by drawing so much attention to it here, it likely makes Mrs. Coulter certain, if she wasn't before, that Lyra is hiding something valuable from her. She, and still more, her demon is the one who escalates the conflict suddenly. Lyra tries to fight back at first on Mrs. Coulter's own territory with charming speech. But Pan becomes a polecat, and that seems to be provocation enough for the golden monkey to spring upon him. The nature of his attack is revealing... Due to his unique form, the golden monkey is able to pin down and neutralize Pan, and then still have a hand free to pull sadistically on his vulnerable ear. Lyra feels his pain and fear and pleads for mercy. Mrs. Coulter, meanwhile, ostentatiously aloof, divides her attention from her demons, looking up from the flowers only grudgingly. But is she really so aloof? The golden monkey's curiosity and coldness foreshadow the truth of what Mrs. Coulter and her agents are doing to the kidnapped children and their demons. The next phase of the confrontation is, if anything, still more unnerving. She comes in to reprimand Lyra for slamming the door, and thus showing Lyra's showing that is her spirit undaunted, and Mrs. Coulter cannot abide that. She puts it in terms of manners again, but the hot smell 
coming off her betrays her personal affront this time. To properly cow Lyra, she forces her to stand on tiptoe, emphasizing their difference in stature and all that entails. It makes her kiss her obediently. And the metallic artificiality underneath the glamorous surface is unmistakable at last. Throughout the party, then, Lyra masks the trauma of this confrontation with her benefactor, behaving just as Mrs. Coulter wishes her to. Again, though, her own inwardness has been correspondingly deepened. Lyra found it was quite easy to pretend to be light-hearted and charming, though she was conscious every second of Pantalaimon's disgust and of his hatred for the golden monkey. Presently the doorbell rang, and soon the room was filling up with fashionably dressed ladies and handsome or distinguished men. Lyra moved among them, offering canapés or smiling sweetly and making pretty answers when they spoke to her. She felt like a universal pet. The second she voiced that thought to herself, Pantalaimon stretched his goldfinch wings and chirruped loudly. Beginning to process what has happened, to deal with how it changes her incorrect view of the world, she suffers, of course, but she also begins to reconstruct her view more truthfully, no longer lying to herself quite so much. Speaking to the old lady with the lorgnette, another operatic and theatrical touch, and with the macaw demon, so she's a kind of parrot spouting polite questions and phrases, we learn at last what Lyra knows about her parents. They were a count and countess, she said. They both died in aeronautical accident in the north. Which count? Count Belacqua. He was Lord Asriel's brother. So this is still another aspect of the idea of north. The hope of going there that kept Lyra docile up until now is connected still more deeply with her sense of her own story. For a little more on the name Belacqua, which literally sounds like it should mean beautiful, possibly warlike water, check out the scholarship opportunity posted on the New School Notes blog. There's also the not-so-subtle hint there that Mrs. Coulter is Lyra's mother. Adele Starminster, the journalist, will reinforce this momentarily. But there's so much novel information and stimulation that that aspect of Lyra's story about herself is still not shaken for now. Like with eating asparagus, or the phrase take him up, she blithely muddles through, beginning to use her innocence to her advantage, detaching herself here before discomfiting the old lady too greatly. In the conversations which follow, it is her innocence which protects her again, and we see how she becomes aware of this. First, we begin to learn more about dust. She was going past a group of men and young, one young woman near the large sofa when she heard the word dust. She had seen enough of society now to understand when men and women were flirting, and she watched the process with fascination, though she was more fascinated by the mention of dust, and she hung back to listen. The men seemed to be scholars. From the way the young woman was questioning them, Lyra took her to be a student of some kind. It was discovered by a Muscovite. Stop me if you know this already, a middle-aged man was saying, as the young woman gazed at him in admiration. A man called Rusakov, and they're usually called Rusakov particles after him. Elementary particles that don't interact in any way with others. Very hard to detect. But the extraordinary thing is that they seem to be attracted to human beings. Really, said the young woman, wide-eyed. 
and even more extraordinary, he went on, some human beings more than others. Adults attracted, but not children. At least, not much, and not until adolescence. In fact, that's the very reason. His voice dropped, and he moved closer to the young woman, putting his hand confidentially on her shoulder. That's the very reason the ablation board was set up, as our good hostess here could tell you. Really? Is she involved with the oblation board? My dear, she is the oblation board. It's entirely her own project. The man was about to tell her more when he caught sight of Lyra. She stared back at him unblinkingly, and perhaps he had had a little too much to drink, or perhaps he was keen to impress the young woman, for he said, This little lady knows all about it, I'll be bound. You're safe from the oblation board, aren't you, my dear? Oh, yes, said Lyra. I'm safe from everyone here. When I, Where I used to live, in Oxford... There was all kinds of dangerous things. There's Egyptians. They take kids and some to the Turks for slaves. And on Port Meadow, at the full moon, there's a werewolf that comes out of the old nunnery at Godstow. I heard him howling once. And there's the gobblers. That's what I mean, the man said. That's what they call the oblation board, don't they? Lyra felt Pantaliman tremble suddenly. But he was on his best behavior. The demons of the two grown-ups, a cat and a butterfly, didn't seem to notice. You might note in passing that Lyra mentions the Godstone nunnery werewolf, and the name becomes salient to the readers of La Belle Sauvage. No werewolf appears in that book, though the fearsome Gerard Bonneville is close enough. Clearly the gobblers are the important thing here, though. Whatever the veracity of the man's etymological explanation, general oblation board, as opposed to the metaphorical forcefulness of the tales we heard in chapter 3, we now know that the gobblers and the oblation board are one, and that Mrs. Coulter is the prime mover. In chapter one, we heard first of the oblation board and the awe in which it and its mistress were held. When we first saw Mrs. Coulter, she was in the doorway of a church and luring children aboard a ship, and Lyra was privy to none of this. But now we watch Lyra suddenly begin to learn what all this means. After Mrs. Coulter dispatches the journalist, and the heat of her personality is applied full force this time, it seems, causing the young woman's demon to faint. Lyra deflects her suspicion before coming face to face, at last, with Lord Boreal. Miss Lyra, the gentleman by the fireplace would like to speak to you. He's Lord Boreal, if you didn't know. Lyra looked up across the room. The powerful-looking, gray-haired man was looking directly at her. But as their eyes met, he nodded and beckoned. Unwilling, but more interested now, she went across. Good evening, child, he said. His voice was smooth and commanding. His serpent demon's mailed head and emerald eyes glittered in the light from the cut glass lamp on the wall nearby. Good evening, said Lyra. How is my old friend the master of Jordan? Very well, thank you. I expect they were all sorry to say goodbye to you. Yes, they were. And is Mrs. Coulter keeping you busy? What is she teaching you? Because Lyra was feeling rebellious and uneasy, she didn't answer this patronizing question with the truth or with one of her usual fights of fancy. Instead, she said, I'm learning about Rusakov particles and about the ablation board. He seemed to become focused at once, in the same way that you could focus the beam of an amberic lantern. All his attention streamed at her fiercely. Suppose you tell me what you know, he said. They're doing experiments in the north, Lyra said. She was feeling reckless now. Like Dr. Grumman. Go on. 
they've got this special kind of photogram where you can see dust. And when you see a man, there's like all light coming to him. There's none on a child, at least not so much. Did Mrs. Coulter show you a picture like that? Lyra hesitated, for this was not lying, but something else, and she wasn't practiced at it. No, she said after a moment. I saw that one at Jordan College. Who showed it to you? He wasn't really showing it to me, Lyra admitted. I was just passing, and I saw it. Then my friend Roger was taken by the oblation board, but who showed you that picture? My uncle Asriel. When? When he was in Jordan College last time. I see. And what else have you been learning about? Did I hear you mention the oblation board? Yes, but I didn't hear about that from him. I heard it here. Which was exactly true, she thought. He was looking at her narrowly. She gazed back with all the innocence she had. Finally, he nodded. Then Mrs. Coulter must have decided you were ready to help her in that work. Interesting. Have you taken part yet? No, said Lyra. What was he talking about? Pantalaimon was cleverly in his most inexpressive shape, a moth, and couldn't betray her feelings, and she was sure she could keep her own face innocent. And has she told you what happens to the children? No, she hasn't told me that. I only just know it's about dust, and they're like a kind of sacrifice. Again, that wasn't exactly a lie, she thought. She had never said that Mrs. Coulter herself had told her. Sacrifice is rather a dramatic way of putting it. What's done is for their good as well as ours. And of course, they all come to Mrs. Coulter willingly. That's why she's so valuable. They want to take part. And what child could resist her? And if she's going to use you as well to bring them in, so much the better, I'm very pleased. He smiled at her in the way Mrs. Coulter had, as if they were both in on a secret. She smiled politely back, and he turned away to talk to someone else. Though she was overmastered by Mrs. Coulter before, she evades her wrath this time, not panicking even when Pan points out the golden monkey likely having found the alethiometer. Lyra remains in the game long enough to learn a few crucial pieces of information at the party, which she was evidently either not yet supposed to know, or which Mrs. Coulter and Lord Boreal underestimated her ability to piece together. The first is about dust and the oblation board, which she heard the scholars telling the journalist. And here she deploys that knowledge to gain further information. Boreal does some similar things to Mrs. Coulter, guiding the conversation by the force of his personality, focusing it upon her and not letting up on his questions. But Lyra's equal to it. She's able to resist losing her composure. Reckless as she is with her rude truth-telling at first, she turns it to her advantage, spinning out half-truths, and thus deceiving him into telling her more than she actually knows. The simile of the lantern should remind us of Lord Asriel again. Boreal drops the master's name as well. His serpent demon, perhaps, will make us wonder about the adult figure from Lord Asriel's photogram, whose demon, we were told, was coiled about his neck in the form of a serpent. There will be at least two other characters we'll meet with serpent demons in the Golden Compass, however, so this will have to remain an open question, at least for now. He closes the conversation the same way Miss Coulter did, too, with that sense of sharing a secret, which, of course, is what he's done, though not realizing that Lyra didn't know the secret until he told her. With the passing mention of Lyra's fascination with flirting and her curiosity about the taste of the cocktails, 
all tending toward the innocence end of the spectrum, though certainly moving some distance along it, here we start to see Lyra move more decisively towards experience. She finally mentions Roger, and in that moment she understands that Mrs. Coulter is responsible. She learns that Mrs. Coulter personally oversees the disappearances and was likely planning to use Lyra to help. So we hear a confused flow of emotions and a similar babble of talk closes her experience of the party. She wanted to go away by herself and talk to him. She wanted to leave the flat. She wanted to go back to Jordan College in her shabby bedroom on Staircase 12. She wanted to find Lord Asriel. And as if in answer to that last wish, she heard his name mentioned and wandered closer to the group talking nearby with the pretext of helping herself to a canopy from the plate on the table. A man in a bishop's purple was saying, No, I don't think Lord Asriel will be troubling us for quite some time. And where did you say he was being held? In the fortress of Svalbard, I'm told. Guarded by Panzerbjörner, you know, armored bears, formidable creatures. He won't escape from them if he lives to be a thousand. The fact is that I really think the way is clear, very nearly clear. The last experiments have confirmed what I always believed, that dust is an emanation from the dark principle itself, and do I detect the Zoroastrian heresy, what used to be a heresy, and if we could isolate the dark principle, Svalbard, did you say? Armored bears, the oblation board. The children don't suffer, I'm sure of it. Lord Asriel imprisoned. Lyra had heard enough. She turned away, and moving as quietly as the moth pantalimon, she went into her bedroom and closed the door. The noise of the party was muffled at once. We find out, at last, that Panzerbjörne are armored bears, that they have imprisoned Lord Asriel, to the church's satisfaction. We also hear the party line about dust as it's continuing to be worked out, even at the highest levels of the magisterium. Perhaps Lyra could have learned more if she had stayed, but it's more likely that as Mrs. Coulter and Lord Boreal compared notes, they would have realized their mistakes and moved against her. In any case, I also have the impression that Pullman is still working out what dust actually is. The way the churchmen talk about it is mostly reflective of their presuppositions about good and evil and about which of the two they stand for, rather than a definitive reveal about the nature of dust. Lyra's decision to flee from Mrs. Coulter's flat is overdetermined, for in addition to the realization that she was nearly co-opted by the gobblers, there's Pan's fear for the alethiometer. As a symbol for discernment and for reading the environment, the alethiometer might well represent Lyra's internal sense of truth, which has been tested by her conflicts here with Mrs. Coulter and Lord Boreal. She's managed to recalibrate it in line with Pan's instincts all along, and in a kind of recapitulation of the opening chapter, when they were sneaking into the retiring room, he watches out ahead of her in the front hall, in that same form of a moth, which he just used to conceal their emotions, and tells her when it's time to pass through the door. As we've seen throughout the cocktail party, the character's internal sense of their story, how it maps onto the truth or to our best model of reality, are ever-shifting, whether we are aware of it all the time or not. So ignorance is not necessarily interchangeable with innocence and wisdom with experience. Insofar as we can learn any lesson from reading fiction, and I think Pullman would agree that an application to our own experience is inseparable from reading, Though the story or poem is not reducible to the lesson, nor that there is ever only one lesson, 
The cocktail party is rich with suggestions for the student of literature or education, for the philosopher or social scientist, for the physicist or the theologian. I've been helped a great deal in my thinking this week by having already had a conversation with Gabriel Schenk, a recording of which will be forthcoming in two weeks' time. We touch on many of these topics, and I hope that this project will be of interest to other scholars as well as to fans of the books. For recess this week, taking our cues from the montage opening and from the fascinating conflicts, especially the role played by demons, we get to explore London and also look more closely at the battle system of the imaginary video game. At this point, like at the end of the previous chapter, Lyra is still going everywhere accompanying Mrs. Coulter. Her movements will guide the player to explore within certain boundaries, not unlike the way we structured Chapter 3 with respect to times of the year, as Lyra told her stories to Lord Asriel. Here we'll visit the Royal Arctic Institute, smart restaurants, the Emporium, the cafe, the theater. And within each of these areas, Lyra will be able to talk to people and wander about to an extent, but she won't have the full range of her abilities or the freedom to explore outside in London. However, just as she gains skills like cursing and throwing in Chapter 3, here she'll gain powers of charm and elegance. And judiciously applying these towards the geographers, the politicians and clerics, the merchants, the ladies, the theater goers, that versatile meter that we've been calling power will grow. The first real test of it will come after the theater, where I wonder which play should be going on. I'm tempted to suggest one of the ones that Pullman wrote while a school teacher, and subsequently adapted into books, such as The Firework Maker's Daughter. The next scene, of course, will be the electron lesson. By responding skillfully to the dilemma and diffusing the tension, maybe a special scent or lipstick will be unlocked, which increases the effectiveness of Lyra's charm still further, but only temporarily. If Mrs. Coulter grows too agitated, her demon will be still more fierce in the coming fight, and the lipstick will be of lower quality, or the perfume, let's say, will have a metallic tang to it. We'll still have the dialogue about the invitations and the argument with Pan, and maybe some sort of dream sequence reflecting Lyra's fantasy about playing again in Oxford and rescuing Roger with Lord Asriel and Mrs. Coulter falling in love and adopting her. I wonder if it should look sort of like the play that she watches at the theater. Then we'll have to come to the afternoon of the cocktail party in this battle against the golden monkey, it's necessary for the story that Pan should lose. However, I'd want the player to be rewarded for putting up a better fight. We'll learn much later in Bolvanger that even between children, fights between demons are a common way of settling disputes. So we'll see hints of that in Oxford in the game, but this will be the first tutorial about how to conduct such a fight. More so in chapter three, you'll be running and jumping and changing and slinging mud and stones. But here, Pan will be locked into his polecat form, and Lyra will not be allowed to physically intervene. It will be strongly hinted to the player that the only option is for her to choose to surrender, as much as Pan tries to fight back. Doing so at the right moment will give his powers a boost later. Giving in too soon, or not at all, will leave him slightly weakened for now.
and the same won't go for Lyra once she slams the door and is confronted by Mrs. Coulter. In the party itself, you have to put all your charm to the test. Pan's new transformation as a goldfinch will slightly improve your chances of hearing all the information that you might like to, as will whatever cosmetic you unlocked if you choose to use it. The best Easter egg I can think of here would be to get a, to sneak a taste of some of the cocktails, leading to a scene where Lyra waits for the lavatory door and turns green and then has to go and vomit copiously into one of the potted plants. Something like that. You might also gain stronger defenses against the sort of glamour that's used by Mrs. Coulter and by the witches later on, or against the fierce stream of attention that she and Lord Boreal and Asriel, too, seem to be capable of deploying. Again, this would have the effect of expanding your abilities with Lyra and Pan, and unlocking more areas to explore, and more time in which to explore them, so that rather than gaining concrete items or treasures like in other games, what you get rewarded with in this adaptation is information and extra bits and pieces of story. Perhaps as you gaze over the river while talking to Adele Starminster, you unlock a butterfly transformation for Pan, like the goldfinch, but still more effective at casting charm, or maybe also weaker at defending against it. Perhaps changing him into a moth before talking to Boreal allows you to overhear a little more about the dogma formerly known as the Zoroastrian heresy before you return to your room. And upon escaping from the party without being seen, you'll get a little more time to explore the dark city, whereas if you're unsuccessful, you wouldn't have access to quite as much of London before triggering the next required scene to progress the story. Like the first couple of chapters, this is a story-heavy part of the game. So I hope, by introducing the charm and demon struggle mechanics, it will give the player a little more to engage them in as far as gameplay and more strategies to think about. The next chapter will be the opposite, low on story and big on exploration. And so we'll have that to look forward to in our recess next week. And that's all for now. Looks to me like Philip Pullman and Lyra have both been doing some night fishing, like he describes in his ISIS lecture, and some exploring of the borderlands between the reader, the book, the picture, like he talks about in his talk. I've linked to both of those as supplemental readings for this week. I hope that you get a chance to look at those and think a little bit about how they connect with these themes that we've been discussing from the Golden Compass. And with that, uh, we'll let you go. Take care.